Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday that we can gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and together pray, together study the scriptures, fellowship to encourage one another, and to uh, confess our faith in you and discuss our mutual salvation. Lord, we are so thankful for the opportunity to do that. Pray for those that listen over the internet that you would bless them and also pull them into fellowship and work in their lives graciously by a powerful work of your Holy Spirit as the Word of God has its effect. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, good morning. We are back in Second Corinthians and I left off last time with verse... 14, so that means we start on verse 15 of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12 and 15. Interesting passage here, again, in that section where Paul is pleading his case with the Corinthians, and it's a sad story that he had to do that because he came to them and preached the gospel, and God used that gospel to call forth a church out of the mass of perdition. <laughs> and But soon after he left, they started listening to other teachers that taught air, false apostles, people who claimed to be hyper-spiritual, and so on and so forth. And so in Second Corinthians, he's pleading for them to return to a valid and godly walk in the gospel. So, verse 15, he pleads with them, and I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if I love you the more, am I, be, am I to be loved the less? I remember the first time I read this verse, I was reading it in the King James, and it doesn't make it a question. It says, Paul in the King James it says, though, though the more I love you, the less I be loved. So he was willing to love this church even if the re- response that came back was they love him the less. Now the New American Standard makes it a rhetorical question and I think the New American Standard is probably accurate, but it sure had an impact on me because I was complaining, it was many years ago and I was weary under the load of of ministry and anytime you're involved in ministry you can just count on the fact that you're not always going to be treated right okay because it's just you're dealing with human beings and I was complaining about it that you know I, I think I should be treated better and then I read this verse and I thought okay I have nothing to complain about <laughs> so Paul Paul had it really not so good and so he goes through pain He pours himself out. He did so in order to bring the gospel to them. But the real pain, you know, chapter 11 was about all the beatings and shipwrecks and horrible things that Paul went through. But the real pain was how mistreated he was by the people that he loved. Their wrong response, though, will not stop Paul from his loving care for them. The word spend and be expended is the language of money in the Greek. 
spend and expended are the same word, only the second time it has the uh, prefix, ek, out of. And then it says, for your souls, who pair is on behalf of. We saw that word in chapter 5 when we were talking about the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died who pair on behalf of those who are lost. So Jesus dies for us. That's substitution on our behalf. And for their souls. So he's willing to continue to do the ministry that God called him to do, even if the response from them is negative. I think we talked about this before. One of the big question marks about the Corinthian correspondence is what all is going on in the background. And all of these years that I've been teaching through Second Corinthians, we're always having to try to reconstruct because there was this severe letter that we don't have, okay? There were things that Paul knew and they know that we don't. And so we're trying to reconstruct the scenario uh, from the material we do have in the Corinthian epistles, okay? And so part of it is what was going on and what was he talking about and what were they doing and why is Paul saying this? And another big question that one could ask is why did Paul just not give up on them? I mean, for the way he was being mistreated, if you read this, the super apostles come, they accuse Paul of wanting their money even though he didn't take any of it. Okay? They accuse Paul of the, the collection he was taking for bring, to bring money to Jerusalem that he's actually skimming out of that. Accuse him of that. They accuse him of every kind of bad motive that you can imagine. And he still pours himself out. He still reaches out to them. He still cares for them. And trying to answer the question, why would he do that when he could just say, get out of here, I'm done with you. Just If you want to go be false church, go be a false church. And the answer that I propose, I may have mentioned this before, is based on a reconstruction of, of, of what happened when the church was founded. If you go back in the book of Acts, you can see that Paul was somewhat discouraged. He'd been in Athens, and they mocked him there when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. And as he went to Corinth, it says in Acts, that I think of chapter 18, if I'm not mistaken, that God somehow appeared to Paul and told him to be encouraged because the Lord said, I have many souls in this city. Is that somebody find? Could you find that, Robert? <laughs> I don't hate to. Well, anybody can find it. Whoever finds it first gets free coffee. <laughs> got it? He's got it. Here's the man. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Okay. So before the fact, God said to Paul, "I have many people in this city." Okay, before they were even converted. They were God's elect before they were converted. God had them. They were his sheep. Now, so, all of them, so what that means is that Paul would stay there, in spite of all the persecution, that those people that the Lord had told him up front he had, would actually come. They're, they're going to be saved. Because if you preach the gospel to people that are the Lord's sheep, they hear his voice. John 10, right? 
Well, here's my idea about reconstructing the Corinthian correspondence and trying to understand why Paul just tried so hard. He poured his heart out. He just would not give up on these people. I think it's based on that thing that happened in Acts. The Lord told Paul, these are my people. So knowing that they're the Lord's, he's willing to fight the battle for them. Because he's fighting not for false converts, not for people who aren't really Christians, but people that the Lord told him are his. And it should tell us something as well. If there are signs that someone is truly converted, even though they're very troubled and have many, many things, you know, battles to fight, we shouldn't give up on them. That's, the, that's a lesson. Okay, we should be willing, uh, and, this, and this includes family members. Okay, sometimes families really get hammered. It, it's, it's a battle to keep a family together in this day and age. But if, if you believe that your family members are Christians, they're worth the fight. And so that's the lesson I have here out of Paul's willing to love them even if he was loved the less. Yes? Could it also be that, that Paul had an understanding of who Jesus was and who God was that was so big and so immense that he had to preach it? Well, yeah, there's no doubt about that. He would, nothing would stop him from preaching, but we have, if you go through Acts, in some cases he'd just go on to the next city, you know. But in the case of Corinth, the Lord had already told him, I have many people here, stay here. So he, he had somebody worth fighting for, the Lord's flock that existed in Corinth. Now, how did they get so messed up? That's, a, that's an interesting question, isn't it? How did Christians get so messed up? Yes. Well, one of the ways they get messed up uh, is Corinth was a trade city, was it not? Yes, it was, okay. on the seacoast. And when you have a trade city, you have all sorts of, uh, of uh, nations and tribes coming through there to trade things. And cultures get mixed in. And um, a lot of times there's cross-cultural syncretisms of religious belief systems. Oh, yes. Yes, that's a, that, thank you, uh, Bill. That's a, that's a good observation. Very much so, Corinth was a trade city. It was, it was uh, a lot of people coming and going. They had these pagan practices, and the, the thing that was really a huge problem, and that's why Paul had to warn them about immorality, was the fact that the culture they grew up in took immorality to be nothing. It, just, it was just part of what they did. It was part of what happened even in their worship. They went to these pagan cults that had immorality even as a part of their worship. It was a part of trade guilds that existed in the first, first century. And so uh, to, be, to become Christians that live with Christian ethics took solid teaching continually. All right. The problem was after Paul left, false teachers came in and told them they had liberty to do these things. All right. So that's why he had to write these letters and rebuke them. Uh, let me just read ahead a little and just show you where this is going. So, okay, so he's talking about his willingness to love them no matter how they respond back. Verse 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in deceit. Now it's irony, because that's what they accused him of. Certainly have not taken advantage of you through any of those I have sent to you. Have I? No, is the implied answer. 
I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Applied answer, no. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Yes. And all this time, you've been thinking that we were defending ourselves to you. Actually, it's in the sight of God we've been speaking in Christ, all for your upbuilding, beloved. But I'm afraid, verse 20, that perhaps when I come I may find you not to be what I wish. Okay, he still intends another visit. And may be found by you to, to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. And I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality, and so on. So, the, so there are, the, it's just a, a mess, okay? That, that's what the world looks like. The church shouldn't look like what the world looks like, right? Sanctification is essential and important. And undoubtedly, the reason why the Corinthians were not progressing in sanctification is because they're sitting under false teaching. False teaching does not have sanctifying power. How many of you know that? Okay, And so we want to, want to know why Christianity or evangelicalism is such a mess. It's because of the prevalence of false teaching. True teaching sanctifies. It convicts us. It points us to the holiness of God. It causes us to uh, not want to be what we used to be. It causes us to be, want to be more like Jesus Christ. I'm absolutely convinced, without any doubt in my mind, that nothing will sanctify Christians uh, more solidly than being under the true, solid teaching of the Word. That is, uh, Jesus even prayed that way. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy Word is truth. That's what Jesus prayed. Do you think God answers Jesus' prayer? Absolutely. So, the truth has to be forefront. But when it's not... There's no actual sanctifying power in false teaching. And so that's why the problems were so bad, because Paul, after he left, wasn't able to continue to teach the truth there, and other people came and brought air, and they became carnal in, in some ways. I was going to quote Dr. Barnett. In his ministry, Paul replicates the sufferings of Christ as he gives himself for the people. Paul makes no hint that he saves people, as Christ does. Nonetheless, his sufferings through, though non-propitiatory, are in continuity with those of Christ. Such sufferings indeed validate his ministry as a ministry of Christ, as opposed to the, that of the triumphalist, superlative apostles. Remember, um, the hyper or super apostles were the false teachers that they had been listening to. One thing you could expect from false apostles is that they will exalt themselves. They will tell people how great they are. They will parade their own would-be spirituality in front of people as if they were better than everyone else or had some special status that ordinary Christians do not have, and so on and so forth. That is very much characteristic, and you can see it in this day and age as you read the writings of some who would claim some sort of super-apostolic status. I had another quote here. 
from Garland. Here's the best litmus test for the sign of an apostle. A true apostle of the crucified Christ is one who is willing to spend and be spent on behalf of a congregation. He serves at great cost to himself for the benefit of others. The problem is the more he loves them and sacrifices for them, even trying to avoid painful visits, the less they seem to love him in return. The community does not have not love him when it listens to and tolerates slander and puts him in the awkward position of having to commend himself to them all over again as if he were a stranger. So that's his plea, was that he'd be treated with the kind of respect that would be his due, but it just doesn't happen. So then he is forced to defend himself in an awkward position to have to defend yourself because it sounds like pride. That's why he calls it a big speech he gave, this fool speech. I'm a fool for telling you all of this. One more quote. This is from Dr. Martin. If Paul proceeds to expend both his resources and his energy to the point of exhaustion, then what happens if this new campaign is not well received by the Corinthians? What happens if Paul is loved less in spite of his effort? The answer is that Paul would most likely have been devastated, though he's willing to come to Corinth a third time to find out. Though Paul's question of verse 15b leaves open the way for the Corinthians to rectify the situation, it also conveys a fear Paul has. Will my increased affection result in less love from the Corinthians? Could very well happen. I have some cross-references. Alice, do you uh, want to do one? Uh, John 10, 10 and 11, and Pauline, Philippians 2.17, Joanne, 1 Thessalonians 2.8, and Dick, 2 Timothy 2.10. I have a note here in my notes. Their wrong response will not stop Paul from his loving care for them. John 10, 10 and 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life from the, for the sheep. And that passage, some of you went through the class that we had on the Gospel of John here. Let's see if you remember. Who's the thief in that analogy? The Pharisees, the, the, the false leaders of Israel. See, the, the false leaders that were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel were fleecing the flock. Okay, they were they were serving for their own benefit. And so, when Jesus comes, who's the true shepherd, and lays life down for the sheep, the thief that comes to steal and kill is the false leadership. And so they reject Jesus and, and, and stand against him because they have bad motives. Because they, they see the flock as the opportunity for their own status. Although I would agree that Satan is behind the whole thing, but in the context, the ones that he's talking about are the false leaders. Okay, so let's, uh, the next passage was Philippians 2.17. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul's ready to be poured out. If necessary. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 Having so found an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Yeah, that shows Paul's affection for the churches. And Paul had a real 
special affection for the Thessalonians because they really suffered for the gospel. The, the persecution in Thessalonica was extremely intense. And they stood for the gospel in, the, in that kind of a situation. And so he talks about his affection for them. 2 Timothy 2.10 For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Yeah, I love that passage. So he sees people not yet saved as ones worth enduring for. So that means going into a city and preaching the gospel, no matter what happens, because there are some that the Lord has in that city, you just don't know who they are. That's a comforting thing. You know, that, uh, I think as far as my own gospel preaching, nothing invigorated me in gospel preaching more than that understanding. Because when I had the idea that if I was clever enough, I could get more people to become Christian, it was very intimidating. Because uh, I was afraid I was going to make it worse. You know, if I don't say the right thing, they may decide they don't want to be a Christian and it'll be all my fault. And, and that's, that's a kind of intimidating. And, and I was afraid I would be a failure. Well, once I realized that God does the work, if I preach the right gospel, oh, okay, I can do that. <laughs> it it's, it's just uh, energizes gospel preaching. It really does to know that God's the one that's going to save them. Isn't that true, Robert? Yeah, amen. Let's go to verse 16. But be that as it may, or could be translated, so be it. I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in deceit. <laughs> now, this, uh, we've seen this verse before, but this uh, uh, word, I took you, is a metaphor for fishing. Okay, it's like hooking a fish. Okay, like catching a fish. Oh, I caught you. The irony is that the people that did have the bad motives, the false teachers and super apostles and so on, have convinced the Corinthians that Paul was just trying to pull a fast one on them. He comes in and receives no money because he wants to give the gospel to them for free. But then he asks for an offering to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. And so they come in the back door with their gossip and their whispers. That offering that Paul's taken for Jerusalem, he's, he's pilfering it. He's taking you by deceit. He's making you think the money's for Jerusalem, but Paul's just going to get rich off of it. So they are convinced that he has bad motives, so he has to defend himself to this church that only existed because he had gone there under God's direction and preached the gospel. Now, the term burden there would denote being weighed down like a ship's ballast. So he didn't burden them, but they thought that they had been captured, but the people who really captured them were the false teachers. Crafty, panurgos in the Greek, is only used here in the New Testament, but there's a, another form, the noun form of panurgia, is found in 2 Corinthians 4.2 and 2 Corinthians 11.3. Let's look that up. Larry, do you want to look up 2 Corinthians 4.2 and see where that word is used? Here it's an adjective, but it would be a noun in 2 Corinthians 4.2. Crafty. 2 Corinthians 
But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Yeah, so there Paul says that he's renounced craftiness. And yet here, ironically, the Corinthians are thinking he's crafty. But he renounced that because he is committed to just straightforward teaching the word of God without adulteration, without alteration, without deceit, without craftiness. The word of God preached, taught to the congregation. They could all hear it. They could all see it. They could all understand it. And God will do his work of grace. There's, I mean, really, there's the essence of Christian ministry right there. That's more important than anything else that could ever be done. No, there's no responsibility that any sort of a church leader has is more important responsibility than the accurate proclamation of the word. Because that's God speaking. That's God speaking. Not all this mysticism. I'm writing it. I just finished an article, and if it doesn't, if it passes muster with my readers, I'll publish it. I went back and it's, it's frustrating trying to convince the church that mysticism isn't the way to go. It seems like it's the trend of the whole movement, the evangelical movement. They want, they want to have a revelation from God. They want God to tell them something beyond Scripture that they know is from God. And so then I wrote that article last time about a kind of a mild version of it. And mostly I got fairly good response from my readers, but then there are some people questioning you know, why are you doing this? And why are you trying to correct everybody? Stuff like that. So I said, well, I'm going to go to the source. Richard Foster invented this. You know, he didn't invent it, but he, he, he sold it to the evangelicals back in 1978. So I happen to have an actual hard copy 1978 version of Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. And I read it. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph. Took notes on every page. And it's, uh, it is so hideously bad, it's unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And then, in bringing it into the presence, I, I, a present, I quoted the Christianity Today article saying that this trend toward mysticism and going back to medieval Roman Catholicism is a positive trend, and we can be sure that Christ is guiding the process because it's being led by people like Richard Foster Dallas Willard, and living nuns and monks. Christianity Today says this. So, okay, that makes me feel better. Now, in Foster's book, he teaches Christian TM, but he says it's really not that. He teaches Christian astral projection, but he has a footnote that says, well, this really is an astral projection. You just go out into the outer space and you look back at your body on earth. But that's not all. <laughs> yeah. And that, I told somebody, I was talking on the phone with somebody when I was reading and writing about this. I said, that's like saying that you have this little furry animal in your house named uh, Muffy that catches mice, drinks milk, meows, purrs, curls up on your lap, but it's not a cat. Because <laughs> I said it's not a cat. It's like changing reality with words. See, that's not what... It is. Well, yeah, it is what it is. And then, to, to top it off, he teaches mental alchemy. 
what's mental alchemy? What's mind over matter? In other words, if you see somebody with cancer, if in your mind you can visualize and imagine them cancer-free, then, then your prayer will work and they'll become cancer-free. So you have mental alchemy, mind over matter. Now, all of this stuff in 1978 and today has got more momentum than it ever did. Why? Because obviously we've abandoned the principle of sola scriptura. We don't believe in scripture alone. And once you abandon Scripture alone, then why the solas? Why do we say alone? Because if you don't have the solas, you don't have the Reformation. All right? It would be a good process for some people to read the Council of Trent, or at least read the canons on justification from the Council of Trent to find out what the battle was that the Reformers were fighting and what caused them to be anathematized by Rome. If you said you believe in faith, the Roman Catholic Church says, Amen. If you say you believe in Scripture, the Roman Catholic Church says, Amen. If you say you believe in grace, the Roman Catholic Church says, Amen. If you say you believe in Christ, the Roman Catholic Church says, Amen. But if you say you believe in Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the Roman Catholic Church says you are going to hell. That's the way it is. That's the bottom line, right? So the alones are the battle. Because even, the, even a wildest mystic like Richard Foster believes in the Bible. It's what he wants to add to it, right? This is the problem that, in that passage that, we, that, that Larry read addresses. We didn't adulterate. We're not crafty. We're not adulterating the word. It's what we add to it that causes all the problems. Okay? That's, that's, that's everything. That's the entire battle. It's what we add to it. So if I'm saying God came to me and spoke to me, and what he said is inerrant, authoritative, and binding, and I know that it's God, I've just added to Scripture. I've just added to the voice of God. All right? So, that is... The issue. Robert, if you could look up 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. And see, we already did 2 Corinthians 4, 2. So Paul is defending himself against those people that think he's crafty. 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Yeah. Amen. He preached, preached the gospel in purity, not with anything else. How, how many of you know that preaching the, the law and gospel straight up doesn't flatter anybody. <laughs> I, I've quoted Ben Franklin before talking about the preaching of Whitfield. And this quote was in a book about American revivalism that I had for a course I took from Dr. Travis. But anyhow, I'm trying to remember. I'll, I'll get it the best I can. Franklin, though he didn't agree with and believe the gospel, loved to go hear Whitfield. He was just strangely drawn to it. 
because huge crowds have come to hear Whitfield preach. And, and Franklin actually said that he had to make sure he didn't bring any money with him because he'd probably give it to the guy. <laughs> and he didn't even agree. He didn't even believe the gospel. So Franklin says, the amazing thing, these huge crowds come to hear Whitfield preach to them, even though his preaching is telling them that they're no better than half devils. <laughs> in other words, Whitfield was laying the law on these people, telling them they're wicked sinners bound for hell. And Franklin says, why did they come back and listen to this? <laughs> well, because they wanted to hear the gospel. He preached the law and the gospel. So the true gospel isn't flattering. The, true of the, the truth of the word just reminds us that we're sinners, and that God, but that God's a gracious God, and he's, and he's willing to love us. And Jesus poured his life out for us. Ryan's going to preach on a fabulous passage today about how we even know what God's love is. Christ laid down his life for us. So the cross explains and demonstrates the love of God in a fabulous way. And so we know that we're sinners and we know that he is a great loving Savior. It doesn't flatter us, but if it saves us, it will fill our hearts with joy if we listen. Quoting here from Garland. But someone apparently had twisted his Paul's actions and concocted a conspiracy theory that Paul had hatched some dark plan to deceive them by profiting from the collection for Jerusalem. Possibly someone claimed that the collection was all a ruse by which Paul would have associates gather up the money and he would covertly skim a portion off the top without them being any the wiser and without incurring any social debt to them. <laughs> what, it, what Garland means by social debt was that he seems to be an expert in the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman background, which would be the background in Corinth. And he quotes from a lot of these uh, writers about what their value system is. And Garland points out that in the Greco-Roman world, there was this idea of social debt. Okay, so that if Paul had taken money from the Corinthians, that would indebt Paul to them. Okay, and, and so on and so forth. And so he thinks that some of that issue is going around in the background about why he didn't want to take the money. He didn't want to create this debt obligation situation and why they're thinking like they are about this collection. Now, as I said earlier, the, the, main, the point of the collection, more than any other thing, was Paul's desire to forestall the possibility that the church would be divided into two churches, a Jewish church and a Gentile church. And there, there were problems in Jerusalem, and we know there were. Remember, we read that in Acts. And he wanted to see the church unified and that the Gentiles giving generously to help the Jewish Christians, he hoped and believed would unify the church. But unfortunately, that did not happen. And when Paul got to Jerusalem, he was rejected by almost everybody in the church other than James and some of the elders. It said, it's James said to Paul, there are thousands of Jewish believers here zealous for the law. And so they had been Judaized. And Paul's offering actually didn't do what he hoped it would do. And you can read that in Acts. Very, very interesting thing that happened there. 
it really did not succeed in unifying the church. Let's go to verse 17. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you, have I? Now, this is a series of rhetorical questions. Well, the answer here is no. Titus was in good standing with that church, and Titus had given a report that at least some of the church had repented and that it was safe for Paul to come because, remember, he wanted to know what happened after that severe letter got to them, whether they would listen or not, whether they'd repent or not. Titus came back with a positive report, but here at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is still pleading his case with those who didn't want to listen to him. Let's go to verse 18. I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? No. Implied answer. Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Rhetorical question. There's actually two questions in the Greek, but it translates better into one in English. Yes is the implied answer. So, no, no, yes, yes. He asked them if they can think of even one incident where his co-workers took advantage of the Corinthians. The people Paul trusted, the people Paul sent to them, did they take advantage of you? The answer has to be no. Titus had the confidence of the Corinthians. Titus treated them correctly. Paul is simply arguing that neither he nor Titus or anybody else that he sent ever once took advantage of them. It's amazing sometimes how people will doubt those who are transparent and teach the truth and believe those who fleece them. Sometimes you wonder whether people love to be fleeced. Have you ever pleaded with somebody that you know that's in false teaching to get out? Have you ever pleaded with somebody who's sitting under the Word of Faith teaching? Have you ever pleaded with somebody who's listening to the Benny Hens of the world and believing them? What kind of response do you get? Yeah, they think you're crazy. Yeah, don't touch God's anointed. You're crazy. And when you tell people, don't give your money to these people. They're taking your money, they're living lavish lifestyles, and they're not even giving you the true gospel. And what happens? They get mad at you for telling them that. Or the target center. Yeah, Joel Osteen's coming, and they'll fill that up, and I'm sure he'll do quite well. Yes. I have some friends that went out and, uh, and preached uh, in front of a Benny Hinn crusade, you know, outside. Yeah. And supposedly these were all Christians they were preaching to, and they got, uh, they were spit upon by the Christians. Yes, I've heard, I saw a video of that happening. Somebody posted a video on the Internet a couple of years ago of somebody preaching to Christians going into um, the Todd Bentley crusade. And the, and, the, and the Christians going to crusade mocked the preachers. They, they couldn't tolerate hearing the gospel. How dare you preach the gospel as we're going in to hear this false prophet? <laughs> so, it's just, so, so if, if, if you've ever had that experience, and most of you probably have, because we have the deception is so prevalent that almost everybody has relatives or loved ones or friends or somebody who's stuck in it. And just trying to get him out is so difficult. Can you imagine Paul's problem here? 
He's trying to get people away from the false teachers. And the answer is they're mad at Paul. And, and, he, and he has a perfectly solid case. What are they going to argue about? Because Paul said, did I not preach the gospel to you? Yes. Did I not preach it without charge? Yes. Did not that gospel convert you and cause you to become the church in Corinth? Yes. Did not I send people who treated you correctly? I sent Titus. Did he, did he take advantage of you? No. I sent this other brother, unnamed. Did he take advantage of you? No. But we would rather listen to the false teachers who do police us. Unbelievable. What a battle. Yes, Larry. You know, that brings me to the passage which, you know, Paul was talking about in Galatians, which he said, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Yeah, Paul, Paul's rhetorical question, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Wow. What a difficult job being an apostle. I'm surprised so many people want the job nowadays. <laughs> There's big money in it. But there, there aren't any true apostles other than the biblical ones. But boy, people want to be apostles. I wonder why the reason there are so many apostles today. Somebody said there's like 50 or 100,000 at least people, probably more than that, claiming to be apostles today. I mean, they had 12 in the Bible. Now we've got hundreds of thousands, okay? However many. Well, because the Bible spells out qualifications for elders. And the, only, the, the, the qualification for an apostle is that they had to see the resurrected Christ and be appointed by him. But they reject that qualification. So being how they reject the qualification for being an apostle, and they're not actually elders, they don't have any qualifications. Right? There's no stipulation in the Bible about how you have a succession of apostles. But there is stipulations about how you have a succession of elders. It's laid out very clearly who can be an elder uh, and, and what their role is, what their qualifications are. And the plan was that there would continually be elders in the church as long as church history goes forward. But the apostles, they kind of get the free ride because there's they don't re, the only one qualification that they really need to have been appointed by Christ himself in the flesh, they reject that one. So then there's nothing left. They can fill in the blank. They can write their own job description. Let's go to verse 19. Okay, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Now, this is a little puzzling on the surface. I was studying this, and, and you might think, well, wait a second. This whole fool speech is called a fool speech because Paul's defending himself. Okay, so why would Paul call it a fool speech? Because he is defending himself. And then say, well, I'm not defending myself. I'm speaking in the sight of God. Well, I have some answers here from some of our good quality commentaries. All talking about commentaries. I'm excited. I'm really excited. They're coming out with the entire New International Commentary Series, Old and New Testament, for the Logo system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's on pre-pub. That's the best. It's the best. I've been wanting that. And so Diane asked me the other day, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, 
Nothing. I don't need anything. I don't have time to golf or fish, so what do I need equipment for, you know? I've got a garage full of it already, so the only thing I do is study, so what do I need? And so she said, well, we've got to get you something. Well, this thing comes in. The email comes. The entire commentary on pre-pub for $999. It's like $2,000 for the commentaries. So I called Diane. She's at the trailer in Iowa. I said, I know what I want combined Father's Day, birthday, Christmas, anything else you want to throw in there. <laughs> I want this commentary. So she says, okay. <laughs> uh, now all I need is time to read them all, right? <laughs> it's like, Phew. all right. Well, this actually, this one, Barnett, it is from the New International Series of the New Testament. He says this, that every issue Paul has raised with them throughout this letter, he has given them an undergirding of theological teaching, whether one, explaining his actions and movements, two, describing the new covenant ministry, three, appealing for a completion of the collection, or four, admonishing the Christians for, on the one hand, welcoming, welcoming false apostles, and on the other, continuing in immorality. At every point in the letter, Paul has provided some theological and pastoral teaching for upbuilding the spiritual, moral lives of the believers. So the point is this. Even though he is defending his ministry, he's not doing so to preserve his own ego or anything like that. He's doing this for their good well-being. Because the reason he has to defend himself is because these things are harming them. And they need his teaching. And so he has to give a self-defense, but not for his sake, but for the sake of Christ and the gospel. All right. And I think Barnett gives a very good uh, explanation. He says this also. To be sure, Paul defends himself throughout the letter, but he does so in a way as to edify the church. Historical particulars are ultimately unrecoverable because of the historical distance and the incompleteness of the records. Remember I said that earlier today? We're just trying to fill in blanks because we don't know exactly what the false teachers were saying. They're not directly quoted. We can only assume. And we don't know exactly what was in that severe letter. The Corinthians knew. Paul knew. We don't. And so we can't recover every single little detail. But the edifying teaching across the main sections of the letter, and about Paul in particular, remains for the people of God in every generation. I've been teaching through this since well before we moved out of the old building and I've been edified by this understanding of Corinthians. It's, it's a constant reminder, and the reason I did Second Corinthians is it's about ministry. Paul's talking about ministry, New Covenant ministry, Gospel ministry, the preaching of the Word, what ministry is supposed to be, with the backdrop of the false versions of it. And I believe that in this day and age, we need to understand what Christian ministry is all about. It's a good reminder to me, too. We all need to be reminded. What are the qualifications for elders? What's important? How are we supposed to treat people? What's important, what's not important? And Second Corinthians gives us that information. And another quote. Most readers would think that it is obvious that he has been defending himself, says Garland, but Paul's not... Being disingenuous with this question, he wants to make it clear to the Corinthians that he's not the prisoner at the bar having to submit to an embarrassing cross-examination. He has committed no offense and need not exonerate himself. Besides that, they are not his judges. 
It is God that they he must please. That's why he says, I speak in the sight of Christ. He's therefore speaking before God, not them. Defending himself would be the same as commending himself again. and would, would concede that he was in some way responsible for the breach in the relationship. Therefore, he insists that he's not on the defensive, but writing, but writing as their apostle out of concern for them rather than out of concern to save his reputation. His theological clarifications about boasting in the Lord, 10, 17, and 18, God's grace being sufficient, and God's power being made perfect in weakness, 12, 9, should lead to their upbuilding. Principle governing all of apostolic ministry, which would be that upbuilding. If they fail to heed his letter, the consequences will be dire for them. Exclusion from the kingdom of God, but only heartbreaking for him. Paul's heart would be broken. Their eternal souls would be lost. So that's why Paul pours out himself and loves them, even if the response from their side is to be loved less. I want to introduce verse 20, but I won't get into all the details, though, because this is a more dense verse than what we've covered so far today. But I want to introduce it and maybe have us think about what sanctification looks like, okay? For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to not be what I wish and may be found by you to, not, to be not what you wish. That perhaps there may be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, Gossip, disturbances, okay, and then it'll go on and talk about immorality in the next verse. So, what he's afraid of, and the reason he's writing Second Corinthians, was that he hopes to see repentance before he gets there. He's afraid that confronting them in person will blow up the relationship once for all. It'll just be too much. If he gets there and has to deal with them harshly and strongly in person, that they'll just be lost. And so he is writing this letter hoping to find God's grace bringing repentance to them so that when he does get there, he'll, he'll not find a bad situation and they'll be unhappy with him. He doesn't want that to happen. He talked about that way back in chapter 2. What, if you think about these words, strife, jealousy, angry, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances, what is that? What, what would, that's, isn't that just what the world's like? So here you have a church that looks like the world. See, there are objective teachings in the Bible to show us what walking in the Spirit looks like. In fact, if you look at this list in chapter 2 Corinthians 12, 20, it looks an awful lot like the list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. Is that not right? No. How does that happen? How, what makes the works of the flesh what they are? Well, it's a fallen sinful nature, unmitigated, unrestrained. Now, if you see this in a church, and believe me, that happens, then what do you know about that church? They're walking in the flesh. Even though he didn't ask, give the mic to Ryan. He, 
He, he did a, a DVD on walking in the spirit one time. Why don't you explain the difference between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh? Uh, well, it, it, it goes back to Galatians 5. And interesting thing, I always wrestled with, back in my early Christian life, of what that really meant, walking by the spirit. And in the context of Galatians, Paul is, is making the contrast between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh. And uh, walking in the Spirit is walking under the terms of the New Covenant, really in its basic form, walking under the terms of the New Covenant. We're not under the Old Covenant, we're under the New Covenant. But walking by the Spirit is something that is, is admittedly kind of vague. You kind of ask, well, how do you do that? <laughs> well, first off, we know from the context it's by faith. That's first and foremost, by faith in the finished work of Christ. But uh, that's how we, we begin and that's how we continue to walk. And I actually wrote a... Uh, a paper for a scholarship in seminary, and it was expounding Acts 2.42. And the point that I made, I linked those two and, and said, now in, in Acts chapter 2, we have the Holy Spirit being mm-hmm. poured out. Mm-hmm. And many believed. And Luke in Acts 2.42 clearly declares how these people lived. They were continually devoting themselves. And walk is a... It's, it's, an, it's an image. It's how we live. Yeah. Similarly, in Acts 2, we have they continually devoted themselves. So continually devoted is speaking about how they lived. And they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, and the breaking of bread. And if you've been at uh, our church for any amount of time, you've heard those things quite often. But our contention is that by engaging in those devotions, as, as it's called in Acts 2, we walk by the Spirit, Amen. as long as they're united with faith. Amen. Because uh, through, uh, there's all sorts of dynamics that are interesting. What does the Spirit do? Who does the Spirit glorify? Christ. Christ. And as we devote ourselves to walking in the Spirit, as we devote ourselves to prayer, to the Word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, we are fixing our eyes and our hearts on Jesus Christ and His perfect finished work. Whenever we do that. And through that, we become Sanctified. So that's how we continually walk right. by the Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> that's great. Jesse found that old DVD you did on that, so they're going to put it on their website, on the uh, signet ring. Absolutely. Now, in contrast, I kind of get a pretty good cross-reference. It's interesting if everybody's gone into the office but me, and I'm, so I answered a phone. Everybody here that has a question about the church is calling for Carl. Everybody out there for long distance is calling for me because <laughs> they're the CIC readers, okay? And they find, they find our site on Google and they say, so I've been getting these stories about churches, horror stories. If you look at this list that Paul has here, that's real. It's absolutely real. I, I just got a call from somebody uh, this week who, from some state and said, I just... I just uh, they're going to kick me out of my church for asking the pastor to teach the Bible and preach the gospel. And, and, and stories of strife and division and problems and issues and all of this stuff. Church after church after church I'm hearing. Why? Because what Ryan's talking about isn't what's happening. Now, when the, the, the Acts 2.42 happens, what do you see? Well, you see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. You see people getting along with each other. 
You see people encouraging one another. You see people coming, being, being generous financially when one of the other persons in the congregation has a problem. You see people just being Christian. It, doesn't, it only happens because of the work of God's Spirit. It's not some genius church government strategy. Okay, it's not that we hire more counselors than everybody else out there or we have more therapy sessions. It's a work of the Spirit. And when you see it, it's just what you see. You people follow the joy of the Lord and not like this. So there's a real problem in Corinth. And any time a church is committed to false teaching, there's no work of the Spirit. And any time there's no work of the Spirit, even though they're probably talking about the Holy Spirit more than we do, they're talking about spirit, 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 spirit. But they're not teaching the truth of the Word. When there's no work of the Spirit, you get the works of the flesh. And that's what it looks like. So, the remedy is something along the lines of Acts 2.42. Okay? That's, that's the remedy. That's, you just have to believe that because it's true biblically. I have to believe as an elder that if the true Word of God is taught, that God's going to use it to sanctify people, whoever they are. And he does. And so we get no glory, no credit. It's just God's word doing what God said his word would do. <laughs> that saves a lot of money on therapists. <laughs> yeah, we don't cost so much per hour, do we? <laughs> All right. I appreciate you. I, I really do. I love the fellowship we have. God bless you.